Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Tay-Shwetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmagulu. And today's text, Ready Player One, is set in Columbus, Ohio, when it's not set in the internet, mm-hmm. the traditional home of the Kaskaskia, Shawnee, Miamia, and Hopewell peoples. Mm-hmm. Not that any of them will ever merit any kind of recommendation, because this book is white oh my god the book is so white even in how it decides who gets killed off at the Mm -hmm, end mm -hmm, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. such a traditional i don't even know what i'm trying to say it's just of an era of sci-fi that i think we have mostly moved past Mm -hmm, thankfully yes thankfully it gives me strong orson scott card vibes sometimes just in like who gets to be the hero and why and Mm -hmm. i guess we're gonna complain about it anyway we're reading ready player one by ernest klein this week joe yes and even worse for watching the terrible 2019 film adaptation by one steven spielberg folks i hope you're ready for event session because we have literally had an off-air debrief about how not to sound like curmudgeon old <laughs> you know like we knew we wanted to do this at some point just to get it out of the way this is not going to be fun for people who enjoy this text here's the thing i loved this book when it first came out and part mm-hmm. of what this week has been for me is really <laughs> a little soul searching well just sort of negotiating why i'm so not interested in it anymore mm-hmm. but the film is just egregiously bad like i refuse to believe there are people who love this book and also love this film i don't think that's possible <laughs> now i know they do exist because i was reading them about them on reddit this week i was mm-hmm. in the Ready Player One has its own subreddit on Reddit. Oh, of course I was it does. Yeah. Hanging out in there a little bit. But this this movie is just extremely bad. The book is troubling and problematic, but occasionally tries to do something interesting. I don't mm-hmm. know what the movie is doing. I think but the movie anyway. is trying to be a four quadrant blockbuster that Steven Spielberg mm. can say, hey, I make movies that make money. Here's a rollicking fun adventure for the whole family. To which I say not only have you misunderstood what the book is doing, but this movie is kind of hot garbage. Like, it's, <laughs> it's all so of messy. the nostalgia in the wrong way with the wrong yeah. messaging and just really ill-advised creative decisions, especially in the climax. And also, and I know we'll get to this, but like the wrong nostalgia. And mm-hmm. Joe sent me a very helpful text this week that reminded me that they probably couldn't get the rights to all the yeah. things that are referenced in the book, which I get. Mm-hmm. But also... Steven Spielberg must own a pretty significant chunk of 1980s nostalgia. Like, even if they had Mm -hmm. just mined that, maybe it would have been better. But anyway. It's baffling. Apparently, they couldn't get the rights to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which I'm like, but wait. But wait. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, this movie is made by, I don't know, Warner Brothers, I think. So, like, surely there's an awful lot of content that Warner Brothers owns that could have Mm -hmm. made it into... The whole thing is baffling. Let's talk about the book first. Let's be okay. baffled by the book first, and then in due course, be baffled by the movie. Sounds good. I love this for us. <laughs> so Ready Player One was published in 2011, and it's a debut novel by Ernest Klein. 
Mm-hmm. He wrote the screenplay to Fanboys, which really does tell us a lot in terms of anticipation. Have you seen Fanboys? I have, and I loved it, but now I'm okay. scared that I don't love it anymore, Joe, because... Right? Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's a, it's almost the exact same premise. Yes. So here's the thing. Um, Sorry, I book, keep derailing us. I know, and I'm so bad at plots to the best of times. So this book is about Wade Watts, Wade Owen Watts. Wow. Mm-hmm. Huh? Uh, mm-hmm. There's an Easter egg. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on a quest for a massive easter egg which is that there's this virtual environment that everyone lives in called the oasis and the guy who created it james halliday james halliday is Mm -hmm. dead and rather than leaving a will like a normal person he's (laughs) allowing everybody to play this giant game searching for three keys to go through three gates to win the easter egg Mm -hmm. which will give them his entire fortune Yeah. And control of the Oasis. Yeah, just leaving a little bit up to chance. Yes, exactly. Just a bit. And also just, I don't know, poor game design for someone who has designed games his whole life, but whatever, we'll get there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Wade is a guy living in this really sort of bleak environment. Um, It's 2045. We are in a massive energy crisis. We never Mm -hmm. sort of got off oil. Instead, the planet just collapsed in on itself massive social problems no economic mobility so the oasis has become like a retreat for him and for lots of other people Mm -hmm. which does make sense right like the idea that they would move virtual schooling onto its own planet and have restrictions on what you can do so that you could take field trips to literally anywhere in the world like there's certain elements of the book that a hundred percent make sense and i think the construction of the oasis and how it becomes this sprawling mass really works for me Yes, and what's so super important structurally and what Ernest Klein loses track of throughout Mm -hmm. the book is that this is a dystopia. It -hmm. is not good that the planet is so diseased and collapsing that everyone retreats to a virtual world to live their lives. No, but Brenna, I just like spend all of my time rewatching 80s movies and playing (laughs) video games. What's wrong with that? just rewatching 80s movies and playing video games but going into a virtual environment so that you can watch 80s movies and play video games right mm-hmm, like it's mm-hmm. layers on layers on layers of escapism and it functions successfully as a dystopia because that is obviously like intrinsically a bad direction for the world to go in mm-hmm. um it allows the people with money and power to completely run roughshod over the populace because This is a very literal Karl Marx opiate of the people situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the people have no power. The corporations have all the power. And by sort of bundling everyone's attention into this one virtual environment, well, it is sprawling and massive. It also then creates the situation that we have with this IOI company who says, oh, well, all we need to do is find the egg and then we will basically control the whole world. Yes. And the problem with this book in general is that Ernest Klein sets up a dystopian world and then forgets that it's supposed to be a dystopia. And instead, instead, the Oasis is super fun and we're supposed to cheer for its continuation in its current form. Mm -hmm. So as Joe has alluded to, there's this company, IOI. They're the second biggest company in the world after the company that owns the Oasis. 
gregarious games. And their goal is to control the Oasis. They want they want to get the Easter egg, and then mm. they want to monetize everything, which yes. is a weird part of it because the Oasis is already monetized. Mm-hmm. One of the things, sorry, I'm circling off the plot here, but one of the no, things... No, that... I think it's super important because this was the thing that really <laughs> stuck out to me on this read. It's very frustrating to me. I think the first time I read it, I thought the Oasis was some kind of open source situation. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. And it's not at no. all. And I said this to Joe off air. To me, the the dichotomy between IOI and Gregarious Games is very much the way many of us sort of, I don't know, counterculture post-hippie nerds felt about <laughs> the dichotomy between Apple computers and Microsoft. And yeah. the idea was that Steve Jobs and Apple were cool and they were doing cool things. And especially when they were the underdogs and when they mm-hmm. were losing constantly to Microsoft, it was like this badge of pride to be backing the more sort of like ethical or like the more, I don't know, creative mm-hmm. layer. But the reality is that there is not a lot of light (laughs) between Mm -hmm. the business practices of Apple and the business practices of Microsoft. Mm -hmm. Neither one is giving access away for free. Neither one is like protecting your data in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. And I guess to me, the naivete with which Klein sets up gregarious games as somehow like a for-profit moral good. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess in 2011, I could believe in it. And in 2021, it makes me want to scream. Because because I work in the world of education technologies, which is entirely just people pretending to be good, but secretly being evil with data Mm -hmm. all the time, which is exactly what Gregarious Games is. Yeah. And and even the idea that the Oasis is this free mecca where you can be anything that you want to be and you can do anything that you want to do. But also Wade is introduced literally unable to leave the school world that he studies at because he doesn't have enough money for interstellar travel. Yes. And it's like, okay, well, I guess it's not free then. Because you needed to purchase things so that you could get off world so you could level up so you could do different things. And the fact that that never gets addressed and literally the reason that IOI is portrayed as evil until they start murdering people is simply the fact that they want to run ads and do other things. And I'm just like, oh, man. Okay. Okay. Yep. Well, there's a problem here. <laughs> All of these things. So anyway, the structure is they have to find these three keys. The three keys lead you through three gates. At the end of the third gate, you get the Easter egg. Wade has some buddies. He has a friend named H. Mm-hmm. A woman who blogs about gaming, who he idolizes, named Artemis. Mm-hmm. And then two other guys named Dido and Shoto, who aren't going to make it till the end of the book, and you're never going to learn anything meaningful about anyway. Mm-mm. No, they don't matter. One of the ways matter. the book is a little bit racist. Yeah, we, we just want to be able to re- reference Japanese anime and manga yeah. and other sort of important cultural references. But yeah, we don't actually want to acknowledge these people as people. No, not at all. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> mm-hmm. Quest, quest, quest. 
quest, quest, quest. Wade uh, finds the first gate first because it's actually on his school planet. Um, and then he becomes a bazillionaire. Well, not really, but he gets enough money in the game and from endorsing products in real life to change his living situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, isn't it funny how he basically allows ads using yes. his name, using yes. his video channel. Yes. But once again, remind me about the ads being bad. Yes. Oh, yep. as long as it doesn't apply to you. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yep, 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 yep. Um, Wade has absolutely no sort of like open source philanthropic mindedness <laughs> about his own fame or celebrity. Um, and-, and I get that that's meant to be part of his character arc, right? Like he's meant to be very narcissistic and self-serving, which he absolutely is. And the idea is that over the course of these three quests and with the help of falling in love with Artemis, because of course... Mm -hmm. He learns that there's more to the world than him and his interests and that he needs to be thinking about everybody else, Mm -hmm. supposedly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Artemis gets the jump on him on the second gate, but eventually the third gate, IOI, gets to first. And so Mm -hmm. they band together and they convince like all of the Oasis to rebel against IOI. And then... Uh, they discover the power of friendship. Oh, God. And they And they share win, Brenna. All the That's money it. That's all we win. need to know. Yeah. <laughs> they win. Yeah. IOI gets kicked to the curb, and the good guys win, supposedly. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because I realized that in 2011, it's important to note that that was a historical moment prior to the rise of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. You know, this was sort of riding that first wave. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a really important note because when I first read this book, I felt very seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hugely, hugely seen in a way that, you know, just the fact that like the casual references to things like The Muppet Show, which, mm-hmm. you know, in 2011, I didn't know anybody else who had fond memories of The Muppet Show. It wasn't something people like referenced regularly. Right. All of these things that since, in the decade intervening, nostalgia has become such a primary means of really selling things to millennials. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that hadn't hit yet. And so no. when I first read this book, I did. I felt like this guy got all these things that I cared about at one point in my life mm-hmm. and reflected them back to me and made them seem important and cultural and, like, significant. And that was really powerful. And I don't want to take anything away from how important that felt when I acknowledge that once that feeling isn't needed anymore, this book mm-hmm. has basically nothing else. Yeah, because I do think problematically, it's not the best written book. Mm-mm. Like, it, it's very much a page turner. It does rely far too heavily on cultural references. So mm-hmm. if you either don't understand the reference or you don't care about the reference, or as you said, you don't feel nostalgic for that reference, it really loses a lot of its impact. And you really start to realize this starts to feel like a grocery store checklist of just yes. everything that Klein was interested in, is interested in. And I think the most problematic aspect that I have of it is that there's a really heavy dose of elitism in mm-hmm. this. Like, you need to like the things from the 80s that Ernest Klein liked, because this actually reads more like an autobiography than a true kind of open to the masses quest narrative. Ernest Klein is telling you what cultural references you should know in order to be cool. 
Well, an important point that you raised before we started recording is that the references here are all incredibly masculine. And I'm trying Mm -hmm. not to be super gender essentialist about this, but... No, I think we have to be. If you're celebrating the culture of the 1980s and there's no space there for My Little Pony... Gem if the there's holograms. no space there for Gem and the Holograms, if there's no space there for Care Bears, if there's mm-hmm. no space there for even something that's maybe a bit less gendered and more family. But like, this is a book about video games in the 1980s mm-hmm. and Super Mario yeah. doesn't come up once. That's weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's suspicious. It is very much not just a celebration of the 80s, but a celebration of Ernest Klein's particular interests. Mm-hmm. And... I didn't put it together until you said that, Joe, but I realized that I think that is what I found so alienating, is that this read, I mean, what I found so alienating, because like something that's happened in the last 10 years that I think has been important for a lot of particularly women is that we've killed the not that kind of girl (laughs) narrative about Mm -hmm. geek culture. It's not cool to play that card anymore. Brenna, can you unpack that to make sure that people understand what you're referencing? Yeah, so in nerd culture, there used to be this really strong, and I I think there still are, is in some circles, but geek culture used to be really predicated on this idea that really the feminine was negative and that, Mm -hmm. you know, not that kind of girl is the girl who loves first-person shooters and... She'll eat pizza, drink beer. (laughs) She'll keep up with your Dungeons and Dragons game, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it was sort of a mark of pride when I was growing up as a teenage girl. Like, I'm not that kind of girl. I know what you mean when you talk about joust. Like, I'm not Mm -hmm. that kind of girl. I play World of Warcraft. Yeah. And we've spent the last decade really trying to unpack that. And as a result, Mm -hmm. there's been a huge celebration of the kinds of cultural references from the 80s that didn't get their due so Mm -hmm. like you know snag tights last month had a special collection about the care bears (laughs) nice all of a sudden women can buy that nostalgic stuff that connects to girlhood right in a way that we haven't been able to previously and i i think that that's why it felt so absent here is because when i read this book in 2011 i didn't even know that was missing from Mm -hmm. my sort of self id as a nerd if that makes sense Absolutely, if only because I also think that in 2011, we not only didn't realize that we had been indoctrinated into a certain type of geek worship, but also we didn't know what we were missing because no one had really started to talk about it. Like the number, I'm sorry, this is a a slight detour into like horror culture, but the number of texts that have been appropriated or rather reappropriated from this period when Ready Player One came out, where they failed or were dismissed outright because they were directed by women, they featured women, they were female narratives. Like this time period is really when that shift is starting to happen, as well as the rise of nostalgia culture, which lends credence to like reevaluating things that we had previously dismissed or just outright forgotten because they were for girls or they were Mm -hmm. for gays. And like those things aren't good until we get to this reclamation point. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm so shocked that it's, that it's only 10 years ago. (laughs) Right. It's been a long 10 years and in some ways a very short 10 years. I genuinely loved this book when it came out and it's shocking to me how 
distant I feel from that person now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like you, I struggled with this. And I think one of the things we wanted to do was be able to have a real frank conversation about the fact that we both like this and now both aggressively dislike it and Mm -hmm. acknowledge the fact that there are probably still people who do like it. But reading this, you mentioned uh, Orson Scott Card. I definitely thought of Scott Pilgrim in the conversation Mm -hmm. that we had like Mm -hmm. all the way back in the first year of the pod. And One of the things that helped me was a Vox article by Constance Grady, who helped to elucidate one of the other reasons why this shifted in my mind. And I realize it comes back to the time when Ernest Klein released his second book, which is called Armada. And it's basically a lot of the things we're not liking about Ready Player One amped up to 10. So it's very much a like, hey, screw you people for not liking me and who I am and this certain type of geek worship. And that person literally becomes the person who saves the world. So it's the same thing, only like really ramped up. Mm -hmm. And it comes out in 2015, this novel. And right around the same time is when Gamergate is happening. Mm. So folks who don't know Gamergate, it's also... I'm so happy for you if you don't know Gamergate. (laughs) Good work. You have lived a better life than me. Yeah. So this is really when the internet, it's become a place where people can attack each other and it starts to get increasingly more toxic. So it's not about like reaching out to each other on message boards and like finding communal things that we all enjoy. It's also crapping on things that you don't like, doxing people that you don't like. So Gamergate is very much a specific corner of the internet that focused on targeting women specifically gamers or female creators of games and anything to do with like trying to make them more feminist more sellable to girls including people of color like basically anything that we now call progressive or woke or social justice warriors that kind of stuff gamergate was about young white male gamers being as exclusionary as possible and targeting women for hate for campaigns where they would release their public information online where they would make really graphic rape and Mm. murderous threats against them to the point where many people ended up like leaving the industry turning up their social media because they could not handle the barrage and it was basically all about young white male entitlement saying you don't belong here these are our games so they called it gamergate because it's very much gatekeeping and it specifically involved the gaming community but it's obviously spread out oh yeah we had comics gate shortly after mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know part of the narrative that spun out from both Gamergate and Comicsgate was this notion of the fake geek girl, like, which is just (laughs) hilarious. This idea that- Oh gosh, I forgot all about this right now. (laughs) This idea that like large groups of women were just pretending to be into geeky things Mm -hmm. to get cred with- who exactly we still don't know i still don't understand it falls apart pretty quickly but the kind of gatekeeping that we saw in comics culture around this time is sometimes summarized by the phrase name five robins so it was the idea that like Mm. if you tried to say that you liked batman the question back would be okay yeah you like batman well name five robins Mm -hmm. 
which I can do and can also tell you that Batman sucks. Um, (laughs) He actually aggressively does. He sucks Uh. so much. Um, So, you know, that's another thing that I see reflected back here is is we're on the other side of the fake geek girl moment. Mm -hmm. We pushed really hard to show not just that women belong in like quote unquote nerd spaces but more importantly that women have always been in nerd spaces right Mm -hmm. like the first star trek conventions were organized by women like slash fiction as a concept oh god yeah women like Mm -hmm. these sort of central components of geek and nerd culture are also centrally and critically places where women have always existed and so right To get on the other side of that and then to look back at a character like Artemis, like, are you going to tell me that Artemis, obsessed with the 1980s, is not into Gem and the Holograms? Right. Are you going to tell me that Artemis, girl gamer extraordinaire, doesn't have, like, Kirby sneakers? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) it just doesn't make any sense that she doesn't get to have any contextual reference points that are in any way feminine or feminized and it's it's an inability to see that whole community that really Mm -hmm. makes this book hard even before you get to just like the egregious whiteness of the book and Mm -hmm. the unwillingness to lend humanity to any of the characters who aren't weighed even Mm -hmm. artemis because she is so heavily manic pixie dream girled she doesn't get to be a whole human being no it's just a shame (laughs) and any kind of efforts that Klein makes. So like Artemis is described as a curvy, full-bodied woman. Oh, and one of the ways, by the way, that she's not like other girls, mm-hmm. which I think is actually a verbatim phrase from the book, is that she doesn't have a skinny avatar. Her avatar is also, he calls right. Rubenesque, right? Mm-hmm. And so this idea yes. that like she's not obsessed with being perceived in a certain way, which of course she is. Like this mm-hmm. virtual world that's only mad, only predicated. Sorry, I'm getting mad. It's a virtual mm-hmm. world that's only predicated on how you appear, but okay, whatever, you go off, Wade. Absolutely. And Wade also spends the entire book comparing her to other girls about how she's not like other girls. And you're just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I can't. Like my head's about to explode. Mm-hmm. And then of course we also have H, who was later revealed to be a black lesbian who has been kicked out of her house by her mom and drives around the country in a van. And the default response that Wade gives, which I think is Ernest Klein mistakenly believing that he's like doing a bang up job Mm -hmm. is that wade goes oh well i guess i'm okay with it because i don't really see race and sexual orientation (laughs) and you're like oh okay i'm just gonna keep calling you h and keep giving Mm -hmm. you male pronouns even now i know what your actual identity is okay yeah and also as though h's blackness and her sexual orientation aren't characteristics that define her as a person like with interests and desires and as if it's not a wildly damning condemnation of the oasis that even mm-hmm. in this massive virtual world h cannot be herself mm-hmm. h must perform whiteness and h oh, yeah. must perform maleness in order to be taken seriously mm-hmm. that by the way gets about a paragraph of consideration oh sure all of these concepts get about a line and meanwhile like you're reading this through the 2021 lens which yes is maybe unfair to a book that was published a decade ago but all i can do is be like wow wade sure does read like a bit of an incel doesn't he <laughs> oh my god yeah. Like, he's either getting this egg or he's going on a rampage. It's one or the other. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, <sighs> lest folks think that we're being ungenerous, we should acknowledge that there is fun to be had in the game. Like, if you can turn your brain off and not... Did I say game? In the book. <laughs> if you can turn your brain off and just kind of go with it, and if you are like you and I, Brenna, where we did grow up in the 80s, and a lot of this does have a cultural resonance to us, I think that there is a funness to be had. Like, I love the idea of having to narrate my favorite movie to pass Mm -hmm. a game goal or, you know, like hop in a a model replica of a famous vehicle from a movie that I absolutely love. These are the things that I think were really connected with people. The idea that the items that maybe they felt were being crapped on by a larger society had a cultural worth. And I I really feel that. And I think you did too, because Mm -hmm. we are both pop culture aficionados. And to me, I think that's where the success of the book and to a lesser extent, the film lies, where we think, oh, this is a recognition of who we are. Like we have worth, even if a larger society says, oh, well, shouldn't you be more focused on important things? Yes, it makes special and significant things that we, especially as kids of the 80s, spent the majority of our sort of adolescence and 20s apologizing mm-hmm. Apologizing for. for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like these... <laughs> If you're a younger listener to the pod, you will not probably realize just how maligned nerds were for Mm -hmm. much of this period of time. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's so many cultural consequences of that. Like Gamergate and Comicsgate emerged directly out of a subculture of people who feel like they have this one thing that's theirs Mm -hmm. and it's getting taken away from them. Absolutely. These are very, these are deeply like entrenched and connected ideas. Mm -hmm. And so it's their sandbox. Don't play in it because it's literally the thing that they have built their entire identity around. And I think perhaps it's impossible for a book like this to exist if it wants to play in that sandbox without also Mm -hmm. living in the toxicity of that period as well. Yeah. And that's really unfortunate because. I think part of why there has been so much maybe reluctance to look at this with clear eyes is because it almost feels like giving up a part of yourself. Mm -hmm. Like if you ever read what gamer gators have to say about that moment, I don't like super recommend it, but Mm -hmm. it's all rooted in like a really, it's rooted in a deep insecurity. And you know, oh yeah. I think as humans, we want to believe, like, if I get bullied, it makes me a more empathetic person. But in reality, if I get bullied, it often makes me be on the lookout for other people to bully in return. Or you create a kind of hard shell so that you can Mm -hmm. avoid ever being hurt. But as a result, I think you also lose a lot of empathy for other people who might be in the same situation. And it's absolutely tragic. Like, it's horrible that that's how the human brain sort mm-hmm. of processes trauma. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. But it also just kind of is. Anyway, I think this has been a really, it's a hard book to read without that. Because as you say, yeah, there's moments of this that are so super fun. Like mm-hmm. one of the things that I think is so attractive about 
the setup of the game is that these things that you know you kind of feel like you wasted your life doing like how many hours did i play tetris when tetris came out but what if that my mad tetris skills would be what would Mm -hmm. save you know this thing that i love and give me all this money Mm -hmm. it's not gonna happen but it's a nice daydream to play inside of like my ability to narrate all of greece from beginning to end is Mm -hmm. actually what's gonna save the world (laughs) instead of just being useless real estate in my brain (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the same reason why people are excited by revamps or reboots of IP properties now. I think it's the same reason why people enjoy doing trivia contests at bar nights and these kinds of things. Like, it's smaller scale. But if you're talking about, oh, I want to make it an exciting world building adventure, then yeah, it absolutely makes sense to just extrapolate that to a natural degree. Especially as we think about like, oh, well, what if the internet but used for good? Like, I don't think Ernest Klein set out to write a kind of incel manifesto about (laughs) Gamergate. Like, that's obviously not what he wanted to do. He's trying to celebrate the cultural artifacts of his childhood into a rousing adventure. And I think from that perspective, the book does work. It's just Mm -hmm. that it also doesn't want to address all of the really crappy problematic stuff that comes with that. It's like, can you imagine a version of this story with none of the nostalgia in place successfully? And yes, you can, because that's the film. I was literally about to say, (laughs) we should transfer over, but also let's cut this quick. Yep. Do you like my segue? Loved it. (laughs) My name is Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But he died when I was a kid, my mom too. And I ended up here. Sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere. There's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. A whole virtual universe. People come to the Oasis for all the things they can do. But they stay because of all the things they can be. Can you feel this? Um, Yeah. It's the only place that feels like I mean anything. The Oasis was the brainchild of James Halliday. Hello, if you're watching this, I'm dead. I created a hidden object, an Easter egg. The first person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the Oasis itself. Who is this Parzival, and how the hell is he winning? Find him. This isn't just a game. I'm talking about actual life and death stuff. The Oasis, the world's most important economic resource. It's nothing less than a war for control of the future. Okay, so the film in question, Ready Player One, comes out in 2019. It's directed by Steven Spielberg. It is from a script by Zach Penn as well as Ernest Cline. And honestly, I do think... I mean, I blame the script a lot of the times for very many of these movies. 
if you know who Zach Penn is, the combination of him with Ernest Klein is one of the reasons why I think the film just goes into overload with bombastic action sequences and mm. special effects. And then Steven Spielberg tries to put his usual family, blah, 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 relationship, blah, blah, blah stuff in there. But it often feels at odds with one another so that it feels treacly and like, oh, can we please just get back to the boom explosionos? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Correct. So the film cost anywhere between 155 to $175 million. It grossed 137 domestically, 445 internationally for a Oof. worldwide total of $583 million. International audiences, what you do. They like them, the special effects extravaganzas. So it does so. kind of make sense in that regard. Uh, it is 72% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, although I'd be curious to know how the film has aged in people's eyes. Mm. So uh, starring Ty Sheridan as Wade or Parsival, which is his Oasis username, Olivia Cook as Sam slash Artemis, Lena Waithe as H, TJ Miller as a new character, Irock, who is an assassin that gets hired by Ben Mendelsohn's Sorrento. We also have a bit of stunt casting with Simon Pegg Ooh. as Og, mm -hmm. who is the sort of co-creator of James Halliday. He's Steve Wozniak. That's who he is. Mm, basically. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, and that's mm -hmm. who he is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and then Mark Rylance as James Halliday, and that's how you know we're watching a Steven Spielberg film, because random British actor who is like not good in this movie randomly gets a really big plum role as Halliday. He's very confusing. His delivery is confusing. He seems a bit strung out on meth most of the time. It's very odd. I think that this is meant to be a performance of a person who's on the spectrum. And I actually really Ooh. dislike that implication because it's it's a read from, I think, people outside of like gaming and geek culture saying, oh, well, the reason Halliday would create the Oasis is because he has social ineptitudes. And you're like, no, don't do that. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> so this film makes a number of distinct changes. Almost all of the game challenges. So each of the keys and gates are completely different. Specifically, the first one, I think, is the, the really big one. So instead of having to, you know, <laughs> go through and play a video game and like uh, test your might in that regard, that kind of gets transposed to the third challenge so that instead we can get a really big race scene with a dinosaur because it's Steven Spielberg, as well as King Kong. I texted Joe uh, after I watched this scene and I said, oh, I see. They took everything I didn't like about the book, magnified it, and mm -hmm. then drove a car into it. Yes, backwards. <laughs> God, so cheesy. Yeah. So I'm not going to lie, even though this film got nominated for Best FX at the Oscars, I also Pardon? think that everything in the Oasis looks like hot garbage. It does. It's so janky. It looks really good on an iPad screen and anything bigger than that, not so much. I guess for me, when you read the book, it makes it very clear that it's so lifelike that it's mm -hmm. not even a simulation. Like you are living in the Oasis and it looks like reboot when you watch the movie. I really think that it's a missed opportunity 
visually in the film to not really explore the uncanny valley here like Mm. everything looks like a video game not a simulation and especially in 2021 as we are on the verge of meta the metaverse no please no (laughs) i think we need to see like what does that look like like what does a simulation of life look like and it's not this Mm -mm. no like this is not persuasive this is not a persuasive place where you would spend all your time this is like you know when you had that class that made you log into second life that time it's like that oh my gosh second life stop it with that (laughs) i think one of the other issues that i have with this is that it displaces wade out of the school system which i found to be a really compelling part of the book maybe it's just because you and i work in education but I didn't get to see some of the more fascinating other implications of the Oasis in the film, Mm -hmm. which makes sense, of course. They're trying to streamline. They want to do the bombastic adventure stuff, which the film, I would argue, does well if you just go with that angle. But for me, I was more interested in some of the potential that the Oasis offers and understanding how it functions for people you know this dystopia right because they really do try to lean into it like look at how terrible life in the stacks is look at how terrible life in downtown vancouver is gosh yeah (laughs) everything about the film feels pardon my french half-assed like anything that we're not interested in we're sort of throwing it in there but not really so it's like okay we have to cast this gamer girl but we don't want to have a curvaceous or uh even even remotely larger actress so we're gonna cast olivia cook who is supermodel gorgeous and we're gonna give her a stupid birthmark There's actually a lot of body stuff that goes on in the book that I would argue is more interesting than a lot of what the book is lauded for. Like, Mm -hmm. Wade is fat, and he's mocked for his fatness in the real world. And part Mm -hmm. of hiding out in the Oasis is finding a space where his visual representation of himself doesn't matter. And Mm -hmm. the only reason why he doesn't stay fat is because the Oasis update will basically lock him out unless he gets his BMI down to a certain level. And so... Mm It's, it's this fascinating character study in someone who literally does not care about his corporeal form. Like, right. whatever it is, is what it is to, in order to allow him access to the Oasis. And mm-hmm. then you've got Artemis, who is, you know, and the book does it in such a stereotypical way, but I still think it's really interesting to think about a character who is resisting the bodily standards of the virtual world in order to embrace her actual self, her actual mm-hmm. body. And she ends up making money on that. She creates a line of avatar clothing for like fuller figure avatars and stuff which makes sense totally makes sense the film does nothing with any of it no at all everyone looks like a hot actor like literally Mm -hmm. there's there's one body type and it's either skinny or fit that's Mm -hmm. that's your option and it's also almost all completely white. So once again, we have Lena Waithe as our sort of sole significant person of color. But in this case, H is even less of a character because mm-hmm. when we find out that it's a black lesbian in the real world, we don't even address that. It's like, get in the van. We're being hunted. We got to peel out. No, it's just used for comedy. It's like, what? Mm-hmm. That's not who you're expecting. Oh my god. That's it. The comedy beats in this movie. So a lot of the comedy comes from TJ Miller's character, which makes sense because he's a comedian. (laughs) 
he's also a terrible person so it's easy to say okay well he sucks but like this i rock character yeah it it doesn't make any sense as to why he's in here except when you look at oh they're trying to make a movie that's a blockbuster for all four quadrants as i said at the top which means they're going after family audiences as well so they're trying to put in funny bits to make it more appealing to a wider demographic but it is so tonally jarring to me it's so every jarring. time he is cracking a joke and i'm just like get this out of here it's not like the film is super serious or anything but his his jokes come in all the wrong moments mm-hmm. and the vibe of his whole character is like he's a hired killer inside a virtual world mm-hmm. but also he's like weirdly superior about the people he's working for Mm -hmm. and then at the end he won't cross a certain moral threshold which has not been set up at any other point in the text and in fact the end in general is very strange because it becomes like all of the ioi staff are like cheering for wade to win for reasons Mm -hmm. that are in no way established oh just because they want to see somebody win the contest because it's been so long that's it (laughs) But it's, like, deeply detrimental to, like, their ability to feed their families. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, there's no, there's absolutely no framing of any of the sort of larger social cultural issues to the Uh, point where in the film, why? come on. (laughs) Sam's father died in one of those centers. It defined her. That's why she started the resistance. I'm laughing because I completely forgot that whole plot point. (laughs) This movie sucks. Oh, and I just realized that this movie was shot in Birmingham. I definitely thought it was downtown Vancouver. So that's my mistake. Meh. I, Meh. I would have let you get away with it. But <laughs> I will say, so possibly my biggest issue with this, it's ironic because one of the issues that we had with the book is the fact that it wants to not even address what's happening in the real world so that it can talk about how great the Oasis is. And the film almost seems like in response to some of those accusations because it comes out so much later it intercuts the oasis climax as wade is trying to finish this quest with him being hunted and like car crashes and like a mob that helps to protect him against sorrento in the real world and how many actual minutes of screen time are devoted to wade not being able to put the key into the lock because they're, the van is getting shoved around in real mm-hmm. life. Like, they go back to that well, like, six different times of, like, mm-hmm. oh, he's being shaken in the game and shaken in real life. And it was like, okay, I get I get it. I get and it. The van is moving. I and we're it. supposed to laugh because the redheaded IOI <laughs> tech girl, because, of course, she's the right one because she's a girl and she's a nerd who wears a cardigan. <laughs> you know, she's like, why won't you just stick it at the hole? And you're like, oh, ha, ha, belly <laughs>, laughs. Oh, double entendres is so much fun. I hate it because (laughs) it feels like also just at the most basic level, a fundamental misunderstanding of how to build tension. Because I don't care about any of the stuff that's happening in the real world. No. And like at this point, you really should just be focusing on, oh, it's Sorrento versus Wade in the Oasis for this final key. The rush is against time. It's not 
oh, my corporeal body is going to be decimated when this <laughs> stupid UPS truck is going to collapse or, or collide with something. Because also the branding in this movie is out the butt. Like, did you <laughs> notice that we get a Pizza Hut delivery <laughs> yes. in the first minute of this yes. movie? Yes. Also, can I ask a question? Mm -hmm. At the end of the film, the van is stopped inside the stacks where yes. wade grew up and yes because we never leave columbus we're just at columbus from the very beginning yeah and um <laughs> okay so we're, we're in the van and it stopped and then like wade has called ahead i guess to the stacks to tell everybody to like come out and rally on his behalf mm -hmm. and so they do they all come out and they form this like human wall in mm -hmm. front of wade and then Sorrento brandishes a weapon, mm -hmm. doesn't fire it, just gets it out, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, you probably better go kill that kid. Like, yeah. everybody just parts for him to murder this child. Sure. And then he opens the van, and Wade is holding the egg in mm -hmm. the game. Why does Sorrento not shoot him? But also... Why is Wade also holding the egg in real life? Like, you can oh, yeah. see light emanating out of his gloves, and it doesn't make any sense. And then, yeah, Sorrento just goes, huh, okay, well, I guess we're done here, and now I'm going to get arrested. Oh, I remembered the worst part of the movie for me. Mm -hmm. The worst part of the movie for me is when they are fighting Sorrento in the virtual world, and Wade... First of all, Wade, like, can, like, ninja kick in real life or whatever. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. my God. Also, the two Japanese characters are martial arts experts because, of, of course, they course are. Of course, they are. Mm -hmm. And then Wade kicks Sorrento in the nuts. Mm -hmm. And then in real life, Sorrento's suit lights up in the crotch area. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure Spielberg is sitting there going, oh, it's comedy gold, baby. <laughs> They're going to be laughing so hard at that amazing joke. And I was just like, please stop. But that's also a payoff to an earlier scene in this like virtual dance club where Artemis and Wade are dancing up in the air. And she's like, hey, do you have the suit that has the touchy feely stuff in it? And he says, yes. So she goes under his legs, like swims oh, yeah. through his legs and you see his crotch light up. And I'm just like. Oh, are we doing this in this quote-unquote family movie, Mr. Spielberg? We're going to say that she's basically, like, rubbing his junk in this virtual club right now? Okay, cool. Cool, cool, cool. I hated it. I hated this movie more than I expected to. I expected to bad. just be like, I expected to be like, eh, that was eh. But it was not eh. It was, like, aggressively bad. And mm -hmm. I don't think we foregrounded this. It is two, two hours and hours twenty minutes, and nineteen yeah. minutes. Come on! <laughs> yeah, this was actually really frustrating for me because horror people got really excited about the extended sequence. So the second challenge is set in the Overlook Hotel from The Shining, mm -hmm. and people were so excited. Here's the thing: I'm not going to begrudge people for wanting to see their favorite thing in a different format or see it get paid homage. I can understand that. I, I appreciate that. I love a good Easter egg myself. But this was just such slavish fan worship, but done really badly with these terrible, cartoony-looking zombie creatures. And uh, it was 
all nostalgia done badly. And because they couldn't get the rights to so many things, it wasn't even 80s nostalgia. So it was just like weirdly cherry pick things. Like we couldn't get the right to Ultraman. So I guess we're going to go with the Iron Giant. Iron Giant. Okay. (laughs) That's the same. (laughs) Like I don't begrudge them for having a limited budget and saying we're going to use it in certain ways but it just it also doesn't even make sense about the text that they're drawing from so often it just feels like oh well we peppered things that people might recognize in a crowd scene hope yep. they like it yep yep i hated it i honestly hated it my husband was like <laughs> you need to calm down this is actually fun stop doing what you're doing and i was like i can't i aggressively dislike this and then i looked at what i logged it originally when i saw it in 2019 same exact score one and a half out of five baby (laughs) yeah it's bad yeah it's bad let's do uh ya bingo okay bingo not a good bingo so Brenna, I uh i kind of pre-filled it the board in anticipation of some of the things that we're gonna say and I may have more squares lit up than not. Oh wow! Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's let's go. So I was going to offer up CGI. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And road trip. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I was going to offer up coincidental classes. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one I didn't have, so that's exciting. Yeah, because he knows exactly what he needs to know based on the courses that he's taking at school. Exactly. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. very convenient. Yeah. I was going to include perfect date for the club scene, the book version more than the film version, but I was going to give that a perfect date. Sure. Right up until she rips his heart out through his nose. Naturally. Obviously borrowed time and obviously the chosen (laughs) one. Yes, absolutely. Um, Let's see here. Good friendships. I think the book friendship between H and Wade is lovely. Uh I think it's a lot more compelling. And I was disappointed that really no characters matter in the film apart from Wade. Oh, also, just if we're doing like minor critiques about Artemis's character, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I absolutely mm -hmm. hated the decision for her to be like, no, Wade, you're better. I'm not yes. important. You yes, need to no. be the one to finish mm. this. I was like, okay, mm. that's what I meant when I said it fundamentally misunderstands even the, yeah. the what works in the book. Well, and we haven't said this, but the the whole lesson of the Oasis is that you do have to have friends. You have to mm-hmm. move through this space together. You have yep. to be connected. You all have to turn the key at the same time. And the film is like, mur, mur, mur. No. Oh, oh, the film is like, you need to be able to draw on people in the real world. But in the game world, the most important thing is that you find the Easter egg and not try to solve the game. It's like the journey, (laughs) not not the destination. And you're like, no, that's not what we're actually trying to do. No, not at all. Uh, Queer secondary character for sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I give Simon Pegg stunt casting. That was nerd catnip. I did that as well. Yes. Mm Um, Manic Pixie Dream Girl for Artemis. Oh, of course. We've yes, got Rags definitely. to Riches because, of course, as soon as he wins that first gate, he's a millionaire. Yes, We've right. got nothing but montages in all of these like <laughs> fighting scenes. That's true. Arguably, we have a dead body because Halliday's body is the thing that instigates the contest. And we see it. I mean, we see a virtual representation of it, but we still mm-hmm. see it. Yeah. Um, and also we do kill Wade's aunt in the book. Oh, right. Yes. Because that's how we escalate the stakes. Oh, my gosh. He's not safe in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have abuse because his aunt is definitely abusive. Mm-hmm. She and her partner do not treat Wade with any kind of respect or niceties. I have house porn for Ogden's house in Oregon, which I sounds did amazing. Have that. Yeah, yeah. 
It's a little hobbit house. I want mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And then I put hollow friendships and romance because I think none of it works in the film. No, agreed. Hundred, hundred percent. Yeah. So by my count, that gives us no less than three lines. Nice. I had filled in the territory now known as Canada when I thought it was shot in Vancouver. Nice try. Nice try. (laughs) It really does look like downtown Vancouver. It looks like that stretch from the art gallery to the ocean when she's running out of the IOI loyalty center. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it actually does, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So this is, just in case you were wondering, even with the like expanded board, this is by far the most tropey text that we have ever covered in the history of the show. That doesn't surprise me. And you know, the real tragedy of the film is that it doesn't do us having to watch it. (laughs) I was going to say, it doesn't try to do a single interesting thing Mm -hmm. with those tropes. Not one. No, not one. Oh, Spielberg. Yeah, let's never talk about this again. And let's uh, (laughs) talk about where we're going next and how people can get a hold of us. Yay. So next week is Book Club. And I think Mm -hmm. we've already had one response written in for The Serpent King. We would like more. Mm -hmm. Please let us know what you're thinking and how it's going. Yeah, if you're listening to this on the day this episode drops, you have two days to get this in. So don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. So Jeff Zentner's The Serpent King. That's what's up next. Mm -hmm. We're going to try to slip in a little bit of a bonus episode around the Babysitter's Club. So keep your ears peeled for that. Mm -hmm. And our next full-length text, which I texted Joe to warn him, is 500 pages. So I'm texting you all the same thing. This is an audio text to all of your phones. (laughs) Make sure you pick up Darkest Minds now because it is 500 pages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm. I'm actually kind of excited to check this out. So it looks close super fun. I have to Ready to say. Player One because this is yeah. like it's very much steeped in fantasy. I do think we're going to get a big budget kind of special effects laden film. So I'm interested to see if this is like ah, just another one of these. Yay! I'm actually genuinely excited for this. This looks like some fantasy that's up my alley. Hmm. So, yeah, uh, you've got two more days to write in about book club. You should be catching up on Babysitter's Club. You should be getting Darkest Minds out of the library. And mm-hmm. if you want to write to us about any of that, you can find us on Twitter at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. Joe, where do they find you if they want to send you their thoughts on how great this movie was and how much they loved it? I will pass on that. But if you want to reach me for anything else, like literally anything else, I can be reached at Beast on my remote. And that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. And that's Gray with an A. And for anything more long form, you can find us at hkhspod at gmail.com. This sucked and I hated it. Love you. Did not love this programming choice. (laughs) Yeah, uh, in case folks were wondering why we randomly did it this week, it's because the softcover version of Ready Player 2, the sequel, just came out last week. And in case you were wondering, even if it ever gets made into a film, no, we will not cover it. (laughs) Until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Yeah, it was baffling. Apparently they couldn't get the rights to Third Encount... No. Apparently they couldn't get the rights to... Oh, shoot. One sec. Close Encounters of the Third Kind? Thank you. Why do I know that? (laughs) 